Hey everyone, I'm Haley Bloom-Peterson and this is Our Stories, Our Health. We're here to share your stories, your experiences with our so-called healthcare system, to shed some light on the ways in which it fails us, the ways others profit off of us, to show you that you're not the only one who can't figure this whole thing out. We all have stories and in telling those stories, we become the vehicle for wholesale change. I'm Sarah Messelt, Executive Director at Proof Alliance. Proof Alliance has been around for over two decades now. We used to be the Minnesota Organization on Fetal Alcohol Syndrome. And over two years ago, we changed our name and rebranded to be Proof Alliance. And that's because we have the proof. We have the proof that if alcohol is not consumed during pregnancy, um, that we won't have we won't have children born with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. And we also have the proof that for people that are living with an FASD, that if they have the right services and supports, that they can lead a great life. And so we really felt that that idea of, of really saying this is settled science, this is something that we know, there's, you know, we don't need to quibble about this. There's no safe amount, there's no safe kind, and there's no safe time to drink during pregnancy. So our organization really exists to both prevent um, FASD and to support all people that are living with it. Can you give some examples of FASDs? FASD is fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And I think it's so important to focus on that word spectrum because it really makes sense when you start to think about it. The, the brain, central nervous system, and many organs are developing all during pregnancy. And alcohol is a teratogen, which means it crosses the placenta and can cause you know, central nervous system brain injury damage. So it follows then, if the brain is developing all during pregnancy, you can begin to understand that every day something different is happening in that developing fetus. And so if alcohol is consumed, it can interrupt what was supposed to happen that day. And so when you think of that, you really understand that uh, the spectrum really is what we're looking at here. So one person may just have some memory issues, may have some executive order, you know, executive functioning challenges, like not being able to keep track of their car keys or maybe a mild learning disability where they struggle with math all the way to the end other end of the spectrum where someone is really 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 um, impaired has challenging um, intellectual disabilities perhaps even has physical manifestations um, alcohol during pregnancy can cause congenital heart defects it can cause lung problems as I said, it can cause learning disabilities. So it's really a broad range of things that result because alcohol is consumed during pregnancy. How many babies born in Minnesota are born with an FASD? So prevalence data is always a little bit challenging because we haven't studied that enough because there's been a lot of skepticism until we really started to clearly state there is proof that this is this is um, this happens when alcohol is consumed during pregnancy so we haven't studied it as as well as we have some other different areas 
but a recent prevalence study that was conducted and was highly regarded um, and was published in major medical journals indicate that as many as one in 20 first graders across the country have an FASD. So that's pretty profound when you wow. kind of look at some of those other disabilities like autism or Down syndrome that are far less frequent than that. We know that on average, about one in nine um, pregnancies are exposed to alcohol. And so, you know, if you do the math on, on all of it, 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 it ends up being about 8,000 babies born every single year in Minnesota that have been exposed to alcohol. And again, going back to the idea of a spectrum, that, that could be just, you know, a couple of, of, you know, drinks before someone knew that they were pregnant all the way to someone that is, you know, maybe binge drinking all during pregnancy. And so, um, but we know 8,000 babies are born every year exposed and um, will very likely have some of the um, characteristics of FASD. Proof has been around for quite a while. How did the organization get started at the very beginning? It's really a fascinating story and it goes back to the 1980s and 1990s we were founded by former first lady Susan Carlson before she was first lady. And even while she was first lady, she was a, a juvenile court um, referee um, in the in Hennepin County. And she was really curious about all of these kids that were coming through her courtroom that, you know, were labeled juvenile delinquents that didn't seem to be learning from the punishment that she would dole out. Um, she would see them back in court. They weren't, they weren't learning from their mistakes. They were often um, had impulsive behavior. And she started getting really curious about this profile of, of kid that she was seeing. And she realized as she dug into um, their life that many of these kids um, were prenatally exposed to alcohol. And she was like, this isn't the system that should be serving these kids as juvenile corrections. <laughs> These kids should be, have been, you know, these kids had fallen through the cracks in their communities. They'd fallen through the cracks oftentimes in foster care. They'd fallen through the cracks at school and were ending up by default in the juvenile correction system. And we know people, we know juveniles and we know adults with FASD are overrepresented in the juvenile, ju or in the correction system. So it became really clear to her that someone needed to shine a light on this. And so during the Carlson administration, Governor Carlson established a task force on FASD. Really, they did hearings all across the state. They appropriated money um, for a lot of state agencies to really take this on um, in the Department of Corrections and in the Department of Education and Human Services and Health. So they really, really um, created a, a blueprint for how this issues should be dealt with because it intersects with so many different different parts of society. It's not just a health issue. It's not just a justice issue. It's not, you know, just a, a issue around, um, you know, stigma. It's all of those things together. And so um, then when, when they, um, when Governor Carlson left office, Susan really felt that it was imperative that this not fade away. And she felt the best way to do that would be to start a statewide nonprofit organization dedicated to um, preventing FASD and supporting everyone 
um, involved. So we were founded in 1998. So it's, you know, 22, 23 years ago now and have been going strong and proudly are known as the strongest um, statewide organization in the nation that addresses the issue of FASD. You said two things that I want to touch on. Um, The first, talking about this as not just a justice issue, not just a health issue. It's a great example of how issues intersect and how understanding those intersections might lead to better, safer, healthier outcomes for individuals. And in this case, you know, individuals affected by brain injuries. The other thing you mentioned was stigma. And I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit more about what kind of stigmas you are seeing in this work. Stigma is an incredible barrier for all of us related to so many parts of health that is really kind of stunning when you think about it, you know, how we used to not talk, you know, people didn't want to talk about cancer. Um, there has, there was stigma around autism when that was first being diagnosed or people were first understanding that. And then FASD is again, an intersection between, um, you know, sometimes an alcohol use disorder um, which is a mental health condition that needs treatment and and um, you know health care. And there's a lot of stigma related to people just in general that have a disability that you know requires a lot of advocacy that unfortunately we shouldn't have to do, but it but it's those are the battles that we're that we're fighting now. But I think it really mm-hmm. goes back to the idea of people's perception of if they understand what FASD is, their perception of who is impacted by it. And when we first were looking at FASD, or when it was first kind of coming into people's consciousness, it was over-identified in the Native American community. And so that was a convenient um, way, unfortunately, for people to understand it. It's like, if they knew about it, they're like, oh yeah, that that's something that I've heard about like on the reservations, right? Like that that was so it was highly correlated with that and that was really um i think you know really about our biases and our 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 prejudices in terms of who has you know who maybe is struggling with an alcohol use disorder but it's important to note that that's that's whole one area of stigma is related to someone not not feeling comfortable sharing that they might need support and services to deal with their alcohol use disorder but it's also really important to note that alcohol is consumed during pregnancy for a lot of different reasons. And so that means that it kind of crosses all walks of life. So for people to, um, for us to unstigmatize this, it's really important for us to understand that this impacts all of us. And I don't mean that in a cheesy kind of, this is everybody's problem. It literally impacts everyone because 40% of pregnancies are unplanned in Minnesota. You know, there's high rates of alcohol use, um, casual social drinking among um, the age, you know, the childbearing age group. Um, So it follows that there's going to be accidental exposure during pregnancy. Um, There's also um, stigma around the fact that um, some healthcare providers still tell their pregnant patients that it's okay to drink alcohol during pregnancy, maybe just a little bit, or maybe just a glass of wine now and again. But again, 
those mixed messages that people get and what's a little bit to me and a little bit to you might be two very different things. And there's been no safe level established. So we know that any amount can be a risk. So, um, so as, as we talk about stigma, it's one of those kind of buzzwords that's, you know, easy to say, but I think to really kind of understand it on multiple layers, it's really important to understand that there, there isn't one socioeconomic group. There's not one type of person that this is impacted um, because of the risk factors, it really does impact us all. I will say that, um, that it can have a larger impact on communities that are also dealing with things like poverty, um, lack of access to healthcare, lack of access to treatment for you know, a substance use disorder. Um, so all of those things can kind of uh, you know, make a bigger footprint um, for people in terms of the impact that it can have. If you have poor nutrition, you know, you're not getting prenatal care, um, all of those things can exacerbate the impact of alcohol during pregnancy. And I would be very remiss if I didn't also say that racism also um, and all of, all of the challenges that are a part of that also can um, dramatically um, impact um, the outcomes, both for um, you know, people that are pregnant and for um, individuals that are, are dealing with that. And that gets into those intersection of you know, issues of health and justice and education, um, how kids with disabilities in general are seen in school, and then you know, how kids are treated with a disability like FASD that might be black or brown and how, how they're treated and, and their trajectory as well. So all of those things are kind of part of that great big, great, that, that word that has so many different, um, different aspects to it. February 23rd was the disability day off the Hill instead of being at the Capitol as you normally would be. Um, what are some of the things that you are focusing on at the legislature this year? We have three bills specifically at Proof Alliance that we have prioritized this year. Many of the bills that you heard about at a Disability Day off the Hill are issues that impact our, um, our community, our FASD community. And so we definitely are supportive and, and care about those issues as well and advocate for those. But we have one bill in particular that we're um, very excited about and really would love to see um, passed this year. Currently, people with FASD um, cannot qualify for brain injury services because it states specifically in state law that you cannot have acquired your brain injury before birth. And so we are working to expand the definition of brain injury. So people with FASD who have a brain injury could in fact qualify for brain injury services if they, if they qualify. So that's something we're really excited about because not only would that open up some doors for services for people that are impacted, but it also would really do a lot as far as educating people in general to understand that this is a brain injury and that it, it manifests itself in that way and um, it help, It goes a long way to helping society understand what FASD is and, the, and probably the greatest challenges around, um, around FASD is the impact on the brain. Another 
bill that we're very excited about. We're working in collaboration. Uh, the Brain Injury Alliance is actually the lead on it and is doing a fantastic job with getting hearings. And that's called Cassie's Law. And that law um, is named after um, a daughter of an advocate. And um, his daughter, unfortunately, is um, in prison right now. And she suffered a brain injury. And what this bill would do is it would allow judges to order a neuropsych exam before sentencing for a felony if that individual suspect that individual we might suspect that they have a brain injury that they've had a stroke or that they have FASD and really what this is about again is kind of back to that Susan Carlson story of we're not saying that this is an excuse um, and that you could you know this isn't a get out of jail free card for for a felony but what it does is it helps that judge make smart um, decisions in terms of um, um, in terms of what's going to work to actually um, actually have an effective sentencing. So that bill we are really watching very closely. And then the third one that we are working um, closely on and gathering um, stories for from parents is a bill that would um, provide some recovery support to school districts who have students that have individual education plans. Um, for during the pandemic, a lot of the distance learning was um, very, very challenging for kids with disabilities. And we know that kids with FASD really struggled. Um, I think a lot of kids did, but if you have a, a plan in place that says that you should be getting speech therapy, you know, 10 times a month, that you should be getting extra help with math, that you um, might need some extra supervision or support in the lunchroom, um, and you're sitting in front of a, a Zoom screen um, and trying to engage in, in these activities as a, as a student with a disability, um, it, it has been a pretty dismal outcomes. And so this bill would provide some, infuse some resources to help, um, help these kids um, catch up in a way um, because we know a lot of them are falling way behind. So the, the last bill is kind of a good segue into my next question. What are some of the support services you offer and how have they changed given the, the pandemic and, and that we're not able to be with one another? Yes, there's, there's been a huge change in the way that we deliver our services over the last year. We really quickly pivoted. We have a variety of services that we offer at Proof Alliance and um, we um, um, really work to adapt as quickly as possible. So, for example, we offer support groups and, um, you know, often have, um, you know, lots of people at our Proof Alliance office where that are sitting, you know, having support groups or meeting around issues. And so um, all of our support groups are now um, online, um, which is seems really kind of normal now a year into it, but um, that was really big opportunity for us. Uh, we offer um, training all across the state and actually all across the country. And the silver lining with that is, for example, we have a, a conference last, um, a yearly annual conference on FASD. It's a Minnesota-based conference, but um, oftentimes people from other states, when they can afford it, will ask to um, you know, register and come to the conference. And this year, because it was all online in the pandemic, we had people from 30 states and four countries that participated in our conference. And so that was really a that was really a positive that came out of 
came out of um, having to be virtual. We also have a, a diagnostic clinic um, where we do pediatric diagnosis of for kids um, with a potential FASD, and um, we have been able to we've been able to um, use telehealth um, for a lot of that work. Um, we also had to kind of refit our whole entire diagnostic clinic with all of the with all of the you know safety. Um, safety measures to make sure that we have, you know, all of the different kinds of plexiglass up and the, the PPE and, and all of that to, to make sure that we could, when we needed to, we could safely see patients um, at our actual clinic. So it's been a year of adjustments. And as we move into the next, the next phase of all this, we're doing a lot of work as an organization, really thinking about what are some of the good things that we want to keep from this? Because I think there were some really great um, opportunities that, that, you know, presented themselves to us because of this challenge. Disability Day Off the Hill was a great example. I mean, there was people there from all over the state who maybe wouldn't have necessarily been able to drive to St. Paul, taken a whole day off of work, you know, find parking, find the meeting room, um, all of that. So in that regards, I think we can, um, things, there's there's more opportunity for engagement. So yeah, it's it's been, it's been quite a year. And we're not done yet, are we? <laughs> <laughs> no, we're, we're really just getting started. Yes. When you think of kids with FASD, what are some of the things that they might need from the healthcare system that might be different from kids that don't have an FASD? One of the most important steps the healthcare system could take for kids with FASD and also for for people, you know, people that are pregnant or that could be pregnant is to start seeing this issue. We just recently received a federal grant in collaboration with the Boston Medical Center, where we are working with community health centers across the Midwest and New England states to help uh, pediatricians start asking, and primary care doctors start asking the question, could this child have been prenatally exposed to alcohol during pregnancy? Oftentimes it is not asked, it's, it's not considered. And when we don't consider that this might be what's going on with this child, we end up um, diagnosing them with lots of other issues that, that maybe look like FASD or maybe is what we think that they have. And so oftentimes by the time a child comes to us at our FASD clinic, they could have 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 other labels that have been put on them as this is what we think this kid might have. ADHD, you know, oppositional defiant disorder, you know, just a wide range of different issues that really does, none of those take into consideration that the primary thing that's going on with this child is the fact that they have been exposed to alcohol during pregnancy and could be dealing with sensory processing issues. They could be dealing with um, a learning disability. They could be dealing with all of these things. But until you understand the the brain injury piece of it, none of the none of the recommendations, none of the prescriptions make sense and does not. They are often very ineffective and, in fact, can can actually make things worse for the kid because um, it, they're often seen as you know you're not trying hard enough. 
um, let's try this medication, let's do this, let's do this. But really, um, when we understand this as a primary diagnosis, um, things start falling into place for the child and for the family, and the outcomes are much better. And I would say that same thing holds true in the prenatal space um, and in prenatal care, medical care. Um, we, people are asked many, many, many questions um, during their pregnancy. And we find that asking about alcohol use in a consistent, non-judgmental, non-stigmatizing way is not standard practice. And so again, we're working with Boston Medical Center to provide training and ongoing support and coaching to make sure that this is integrated into electronic medical records and integrated into um, practices so it becomes consistent and normalized. Because getting back to the issue around stigma, if we ask everybody consistently about these questions, that removes stigma. If you ask questions only of certain populations that you might have a bias thinking, this might be what is going on with this person, then we further stigmatize it and it, it, it stigmatizes the person you're asking. And it also um, closes the door for someone who you might perceive this wouldn't be an issue. I mean, I remember when I was, was pregnant many years ago, my, um, many, many years ago now, but I remember my, my um, prenatal care provider saying to me, well, you don't drink or smoke though, do you? And I said, no, but, what if I had been struggling with that? You know, that that wasn't a that wasn't an open open door for me to say, you know what, actually I am struggling with this. And so I think it really um it really undermines all of the work that we're trying to do if we don't universally ask these questions and then also begin to understand to your first question about what the needs are of that child, because there are many recommendations that can dramatically improve the child's outcome and the, and the child's um, quality of life. I think that's such a good point that, you know, something as simple as that having the profound effect that it could, but it's also very patient centered. Yep. Shifting gears a bit, you have just launched a new campaign um, and I'm, I'm really excited about it. And I'm just hoping you can share a little bit with us about um, how it came to be and sort of, um, what your goals are for for the work that you're doing right now. Yeah, and this really gets to um, another part of that, you know, medical, like what the medical system can do. We want this, you know, preconceptually too. There's a great, um, there's a great uh, program out of Oregon and it's called One Key Question. And it is about, it's, it's asking um, women before they get um, pregnant when they're childbearing years to say, do you want to be pregnant in the next year? And if you say yes, then it's like you have these, then these are the questions we want to start talking to you about, you know, about your alcohol use, about planning a pregnancy. And if you say no, then it's a question about, you know, making sure that um, we're, uh, you know, having effective contraception. And so it really, again, these simple, thoughtful ways of impacting um really impacting people's lives in profound ways. And that's what we really hope that we're doing with our new prevention campaign. What, what we really are, are calling it is let's start a conversation because we really think this is all about a conversation. We, of course, trust our doctors. We get information 
on the internet. We try and find out information that we, medical information that we care about all over the place. But we really know that a big impact in terms of alcohol use during pregnancy is when people have one-on-one -on -one conversations. And so oftentimes people, when we're visiting with people, a woman might say, well, my sister said she drank a little bit all during her pregnancy and, and her kids are just fine. Or, you know, my, my, um, my girlfriends, we all, you know, we didn't, we're not going to drink a lot, but we know binge drinking is bad, but you know, it's okay if we do this or, you know, just have a beer now and again, or, you know, and so all of these kinds of mixed messages, again, that, that people get. And so our campaign is let's start a conversation and there's many components to the campaign, but we have a new public service um, ad that's out and is very, very effective and powerful. And then, and that will be being played all throughout the state of Minnesota in a variety of different, different um, venues and different places. We also started, um, we also have wine bags, paper wine bags, and we have printed on these paper wine bags, um, two messages, one wine bag said, let's start a conversation. And the other one says this bag could change a life. And on the other side of the bag are very um, kind of conversation starter information about alcohol use during pregnancy, what is FASD, how prevalent it is, and mm -hmm. let's start a conversation. And so when people go into liquor stores, 50 different liquor stores across the state and buy a bottle of wine, their wine will end up in this bag. It's a subtle way to start a conversation. And because um, oftentimes you don't wanna be um, preachy or you don't wanna be like judgmental or be the person that's like, no, 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 you shouldn't do that. But this is a really, um, we think clever way to be able to open that door and open that conversation to say, see, actually, this is the truth. These are the facts, we have the proof. Um, and then there's a QR code on that. So you can um, use that QR code to go back to a place on our website that gives you more information um, about alcohol use during pregnancy. So um, we've printed 25,000 bags. They're all out already. We have them in Haskell stores. Um, we have them at um, our partners with the Minnesota Municipal Beverage Association all across the state. And the response so far has just been um, fabulous. People are really, really loving it. And it's, it's, it is really truly starting those conversations. When I first heard about this campaign, um, my first reaction was, isn't it a little bit late if we're already in the liquor store? But then I thought, no, this is exactly the kind of healthcare and public health we need. It's meeting people where they are. If you are thinking about um, a person who is of childbearing age and who also drinks wine, the best place to get them to think about the fact that that's a, ch a decision that they need to need to consider is when they're buying the bottle of wine. I just think it's genius. I love it so much. Yeah, yeah. We At first, that people were like, huh. And then it's like, the more that they've done it and they've seen it in action, they're like, this makes perfect sense because um, certainly we hope it, there's not a lot of pregnant women in buying bottles of wine. But if it is, any time that you um, stop during your pregnancy is is the best for your baby. So it's, it's good then. But to your point, we really want it to be in the hands of, you know, grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles and moms and dads and sisters and brothers where it's kind of part of everybody's conversation. So, so we're going to continue to print bags and, and share the message. Um, and, um, you know, hopefully we'll start a lot of conversations with people. 
There's one question that I ask everyone who joins me on the podcast. Um, and that is, what are your hopes for our healthcare system? Well, I have a couple hopes. And, you know, you've studied all of this a lot more than I have. But as someone who has worked in this space for a while and really sees the challenges that people go through, I go back to some of those issues that we talked about related to wider access to mental health services, less stigma around mental health services, more access to treatment for substance use disorders, longer treatment for um, sustained treatment, seeing things like an alcohol use disorder as a chronic health condition, um, like we see diabetes as opposed to some failing of an individual, um, I think is, is that's a hope that I have that we can keep pressing forward on that. Another hope that I have is that we continue to try and make healthcare more and more affordable and more and more accessible for people. It, it, it just still blows my mind when um, there's so many people that I realize aren't going to the doctor because they have um, really not good healthcare coverage or the deductible is so high that they can't, um, you know, that they, they can't um, afford to go or that they or they don't or they don't have any at all and it just feels like it is it is just it seems like a moral failing as a society that we don't have um access to uh, that everyone just has access to that it's a right um for health care and um i so i think those are a couple of my big hopes and i know that there's it's just a huge hill to climb but I do think that individual stories about people getting what they need and being able to um, get the services and supports that they need helps make them an uh, engaged uh, member of our society. So we all win when people are getting healthcare. It, it, it improves all of our lives when our neighbors and our friends have, and, and our family members have access to, to good healthcare. Before I let you go, um, where can people go to learn more about Proof and the work you're doing to fight fetal alcohol spectrum disorder? We would love people to visit our website, proofalliance.org, and that will give you all you need to know as far as um, information about our services and supports. If you think that you may um, benefit from um, having your child seen at our diagnostic clinic, if you need more information about how to prevent alcohol-exposed pregnancies, if you are interested in any of our programs, either on the prevention side or on the support side, it's all there for you and we encourage you to visit and um, feel free to call us if you, um, if you also would like to communicate in that way. And that phone number is 651-917-2370. And I'll put the website and the phone number in our show notes so that you can look at them there. Thank you so much, Sarah, for joining me. This was a really wonderful conversation, and I'm so excited about the work you're doing for our communities. We know it's hard to stay up to date on all that's happening around COVID-19, but we're here to make that a little bit easier. 
Our Stories, Our Health is committed to bringing you timely, science-based information and the stories of Minnesotans as they make their way through this challenging time. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at OurHealthMN. That's O-U-R-H-E-A-L-T-H-M-N. Or head to our website to share your own story, OurStoriesOurHealth.org. We get through this together. Wash your hands, wear a mask, and maintain social distance. For you, for me, for all of us.